Today, it is difficult to imagine a world without Disney princesses. For many like myself, we've spent hours of our childhood watching princess movies or dressing up and mimicking their personalities. If there's something I love about history, it's that there's a history to literally everything. This topic is so relevant that there are historians who avidly focus on Disney's cultural impact. Though decades have passed since the first princess film, the idea seems to withstand the test of time. In fact, in 2010 alone, the Disney princess brand earned an estimated $4 billion. Recent historiography now understands Walt Disney as crucial to the construction of the modern American society. So if something or someone occupies such a significant amount of time in your development, you would probably be curious about how it shaped you into who you are, right? Well, at least I know I am. That's basically the topic of my extended essay. So here's my big question. How did Disney respond to the socio-political and ideological implications of third-wave feminism in North America through their princesses? <laughs> That's a big mouthful to say. So more simply put, how did Disney change the image of their princesses to fit a changing society? Was it to seem more favorable in the public eye, or was it because it was the right thing to do? How has Disney played a role in shaping what we know as a society today? I'll be exploring all these questions in today's episode of You've Got History. We all know the idea of a good girl is not unique to Disney. We've seen it all over media and books, but what piqued my interest is how the message seemed to be at the forefront of almost every single Disney princess movie, especially the earlier ones. Though the newer ones seem to encompass the manic pixie girl theory, which I'll kind of touch on later, if we look at the first few princess films, clear messages of what a good girl should look like. Essentially being kind, gentle, quiet, and above all, striving to meet the expectations of her man, these are all at the forefront of the first few Disney films and continues to be a pattern we can see throughout history. Cinderella is a key source to look at when we want to understand what kind of messages were being sent to young girls. Essentially, Cinderella's obedience, kindness, and beauty caused her fairy godmother to come to her rescue, allowing her to have a happily ever after of her prince. And it's not the only Disney film that calls women to wait on someone else to rescue them. Both in Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Aurora and Snow White spend most of their time asleep waiting for true love's kiss to rescue them. This phenomenon has now been coined as the Cinderella complex, where a, man, where a woman has an unconscious desire to depend on a man to save her. Even critics of the period described how unoriginal and simple her character was. One critic described the movie as having more success in projecting the lower animals than its central character, Cinderella, who was more on the colorless doll face side. But how does this message become one that gets engraved intergenerationally? We can find the answer in Disney's marketing strategies. When the Motion Picture Association of America, or the MPAA, began rating movies in 1968, Disney attained a G rating, suddenly causing their content to be basically solely associated with children. As the 20th century progressed, Disney became an empire as it released more movies and expanded its market to theme parks and television. Their reputation made them unique amongst other companies doing the same thing. Parents placed their trust in Disney to provide content suitable for, ch for children. The children, in this case young girls, look to Disney as an example of who they should strive to be. 
Additionally, every few years, Disney would recycle and re-release movies in theaters to continuously make the movies available to kids of that generation. The appeal to watch these movies was that before VHS, they, weren't, they were available for a limited time and would soon go back into the Disney vault where they would stay for a few years before emerging again. With the new popularity of television, VHS, and later DVD, Disney tapped into the possibility of home video marketing early and took advantage over their circumstances. These films can now be rewatched, furthering rep- furthering the repetition of these messages in families' daily lives. Through the recycling and home ownership of their films, the image of a good girl reappeared like clockwork in every new generation, allowing these messages to become engraved in the minds of society. This blind trust in Disney was seen as detrimental in the eyes of feminists. part of this story would be Disney's legal fight and the dark age they went through. Soon after the release of Sleeping Beauty, Disney stopped producing princess films, and although the exact cause for this pause is unclear, it could be partially attributed to Disney's legal fight for greater protection of their brand. The emergence and popularity of television had resulted in change in the Canadian copyright law in 1952, which threatened Disney's possession of their characters and storylines. Disney's lawyer in this case argued that the elements of craftsmanship is in the original craftsmanship, therefore the protection of the creation should extend to all copies. So Disney won the argument and earned the complete ownership over their characters regardless of the form which they were presented. So as Disney emerged in the Renaissance period and released its first princess film in 30 years, The Little Mermaid, it provided them with a security to produce an entire empire of toys and Disneyfied objects without worrying about the copyright issues to follow. Disney entered a new market that had undergone significant social changes regarding feminine identity, and so they, ad- they adapted to new norms through a more conservative characterization of their princesses and a series of relatively safe storylines. This allowed them to reach their new demographic and continue their domination of childhood media they had begun 30 years prior with a newfound security and economic reward as well. Disney's comeback after their 30-year hiatus introduced a new cultural diversification of womanhood. They emerged in a market much different than the one they left with radical social changes in the way that women were perceived. The successful relaunch of their princess films depended on their ability to correspond with the ongoing dialogue happening between feminists and the media. Disney had always been quite skilled in their ability to sell itself um, in the guise of innocence, packaging themselves for mass appeal and reinforcing the status quo of the American family values. In the 90s, her strategy was to appeal to the mainstream and growing popularity of feminist values, situating their films in a cultural context and designing their princesses in a way that diversified them vastly from the white European ones before. However, many people expressed concerns and criticized Disney for cultural appropriation in the 90s, saying that their narratives had reshaped the images of several non-Western cultures in an inaccurate manner. on to talk about feminism and how people were kind of viewing Disney's approach to feminism in the 90s. 
Feminism is often questioned and misunderstood, but for the purposes of this podcast, we can understand it as someone who believes that women suffer discrimination because of their sex or gender, um, and that they have specific needs that remain negated and unsatisfied, and that we would need radical change in order to meet these requirements. Though each wave of feminism brought on their own extraordinary milestones, I find the third wave particularly fascinating. It brought along so many exciting changes in the way that media portrayed women and arguably persuaded Disney to change their princess image. Some issues particularly important to Disney was women's autonomy and the representation of women in color in media. Um, and it seemed to be brought to the forefront of this period. Essentially, the new age of Disney princesses seemed to be created in a new feminist light. However, this wasn't always positively received by the public. It's difficult to evaluate the extent to which the criticism Disney received from feminists were exactly justified. Some could say that in some ways, feminists have painted themselves in a politically correct corner, a corner in which the production of politically correct images of women is nearly impossible. So, in other words, are the expectations of feminists too high to ever achieve, not only for a corporation like Disney, but for society itself? Some would say that Disney is manipulating young minds and exploiting the desire for change happening around them to make a dollar. Others recognize the importance of the messages transmitted, noting that these features and shorts actually helped foster the tolerance of diversity in American society. That point of view wouldn't necessarily rule out the possibility that truly Disney seeks to evolve with time by uplifting women in a new light. Understanding these multiple views will help establish a foundation for which feminism films like Aladdin, Pocahontas, and Mulan can be analyzed. So now we come to the movies, Aladdin, Mulan, and Pocahontas. I won't go into too much detail of these films, but if you want a quick summary, you can always just Google for yourself or read my extended essay, shameless plug. All these movies question tradition and expose how resistant society is to change. In each one of them, the change that occurs in society happened because the heroine has compelled those around her to see things from a new perspective. She's misunderstood by society, her beauty and charm attract the attention she needs, but her brave and daring actions are what truly inspire change. Princess Jasmine points out the egotistical attitudes of her suitors and the ignorance of her father. Pocahontas was willing to sacrifice herself to save an innocent life and stop a war. As for Mulan, she uses her wits and strength to save China, even though it is illegal as a woman. They confront the problems with their cultural traditions and demand revolution, making these women undeniably powerful. In the end, though, each of these narratives just cannot shake the romantic storyline. Would the audience be satisfied if Li Shang did not come back from Mulan? Furthermore, if Pocahontas had chosen to ignore her feelings for John Smith? What if Jasmine had never gone to the marketplace and met Aladdin? These men drive the plot forward, showing Disney's hesitance to submerge into a female-driven world. But you know, some would say that the prince-princess dynamic is really only reflective of the real world, and it's a necessary part of the film, arguing that the idea of femininity and masculinity and love are all deeply entangled and they just can't be separated. Either way, despite the persisting romantic intrigue, what makes these films unique to the time is that each chose their respective partners despite their trials and tribulations. So unlike The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and Mulan don't end in marriage, although the possibility is not entirely out of the question. This reflects a certain extent the power shift happening with the feminist movement in the 90s and ongoing domestic responsibilities of women happening in the period as well. 
If we look towards the end of the 90s, though, there's a drastic difference in the authenticity of the princess. In response to women's call for media to change the way that women are portrayed, Disney creates a princess who have kind of an awkward charm to them. Seen most clearly with Mulan, there is an air of relatability to her. Her audience sees her fumble and joke around, and most of all make mistakes, which only add to her appeal. This concept, an intelligent, impulsive female character coined in 2007 as a manic pixie dream girl, has long been seen in movies and books. These strong qualities in the female lead becomes a man's saving grace, even though it was never her intention to save in the first place. Surely Jasmine, Pocahontas, and Mulan don't revolve around catalyzing male transformation. They and the audience fall in love with her intrigue, which causes a change in the world around her. Although on many levels she still fits Disney's mold of perfection, her quirky multi-dimensional personality calls to all women, I would say. Unlike other princesses whom women have strived to be in the past, Jasmine, Pocahontas, and Mulan attempt to be reflective of a more realistic woman in the present day. Disney also attempted to take a stance politically about the language used to describe ethnic and cultural minorities. This is particularly seen in Pocahontas, where Pocahontas addresses derogatory terms used to label Native Americans in her film. She explicitly calls out her love interest using words such as savages to describe her people. However, the word Indian as a descriptor is still thrown around multiple times, but at no point in the film does Disney address this matter. The characters just casually sing racist things as well, not to mention the fact that Pocahontas is based on a real girl who was kidnapped at the age of 14, converted to Christianity, forced to marry, and when she died, she was buried in England far from her homeland. Pocahontas is, according to Disney, a jewel among savages. John Smith and his men arrive with their sense of white superiority to fight a war with Native Americans that don't want to fight in the first place. Disney seems to completely ignore the tragic experiences of Native Americans, the rape, the kidnapping, the murder of children, women, and men, and as well as like the suppression with residential schools. Essentially, the audience is presented with this beautiful young girl prancing about on a canoe and falling in love with a man who would have killed her if it wasn't for her exotic looks. We can see, though, that Disney pushed their limits and allowed themselves to question through the protagonist what a woman should be like and should look like. They even go to the extent of cross-dressing their protagonist in Mulan, placing her in the middle of a man's world, and letting her become the hero. However, you can't deny that although Disney may have changed the skin color and other qualities to fit their storyline needs, the princesses seem to look somewhat similar to the ones from years before. They're all thin-waisted, broad-hipped, and all-around perfectly proportioned. It's frustrating because Disney may be changing their emotional portrayals of women to some extent in these princess movies, however they continue to deliver a message of women across the world that there is a size limit for greatness essentially. If Disney is shaping the minds of younger generations, then we have to say that this portrayal is severely concerning. To conclude, this is my take on Disney's attempt at feminism in the 90s and its evolution of the portrayal of women over the years. Obviously, there is so much more information out there, so I highly recommend you do some research for yourself and continue to build your own narrative. As for me, I'll likely be watching a Disney princess movie after all of this, despite all my research and the negative things I found out, but I still love Disney princess movies. This has been You've Got History, signing off.